You're listening to the Careers Talk podcast series, a Salt Studios production. As is common in media roles, your first job is so often in the country. They send you there first to make your mistakes in a less competitive market. After getting a job as a radio jock in Wangaratta, Tony packed his bags and started his career, but he didn't take to spinning discs naturally. It wasn't until his manager gave him a chance in the newsroom that a lifelong career started. In this episode, Tony steps through the jobs and experiences that led to him becoming a 30-year-plus news veteran. Tony, for your first job, you got your radio degree, you got your experience, and then you relocated to the country. Wangaratta for you, what was that like? Well, it was interesting. I hadn't been to Wangaratta only to do the actual job interview. I remember when I packed my car to go up there, I was in a motel room for the first couple of nights, and that first night on that Sunday night before I started, I just had, and you know, so many people would have these feelings going into a new job. I had this safe job. I worked with a fantastic group of people. We had a lot of fun. And suddenly I threw it all in to join the uncertain world of radio. That was my calling. I mean, that, that was where I wanted to go, radio. And suddenly I'm sitting in this, uh, this hotel room in Wangaratta on the main road. And when I go back to Wang now, I, I drive past that that motel and I look at that exact room and I think to myself, my God, if only I had known them that night when I checked in and went into that room, you know, where I'd, where I'd end up today. It was very, very daunting, but it didn't take long to sort of be welcomed to the 3 family. The only problem was I think my boss, Mike, probably thought I wasn't that suited to being a jock and thought that maybe I could give news a go. And it turned out to be the best advice ever because whilst I loved playing the records, you know, like, you know, 1566 3E, you know, it's the new one from Wang Chong, and uh, thought I was it in a bit. News, I, I just I just had this insatiable appetite for it from the moment I sort of sat at the typewriter. How do you reckon he identified that? Uh, well, I think he, did, he listened to me on air playing records and I think that was how he identified, we've got to do something with this kid, we don't want to sack him, but uh, we need to find something else for him. So the guy that was actually doing news at the time, uh, he uh, left and then they put me they put me in news. So I, I would still do the occasional air shift and uh, uh, had some fun, but news it was definitely where I wanted to go with it. Did you think you would be in Wangaratta for a long time or you thought, I'm just here to cut my teeth, get some experience, move on? I'm just trying to recall. I think I had a job offer very early in the piece. I'd only been there probably six months and one of the city stations uh, offered me a job because what program directors used to do back then was actually twiddle the dial and at night time you could sort of pick up, you know, some of the regional radio stations and uh, one of them heard me and offered a job but I thought it was just a little too soon I went up and did the 1984 federal election, Andrew Peacock versus Bob Hawke. And uh, I initially got knocked back from the Electoral Commission to actually have a seat in the tally room. They said, mm, three in the Wangaratta? Probably not. And then the next day, got another letter saying, oh, listen, congratulations, we've found a spot for you. You know, it was all very exciting. So I went up there and did that and then did the state election. And uh, 3AW was actually the row in front of me and uh, one of the programmers was keeping an eye and sort of said, what are you, what are you doing, mate? And I said, oh, yeah, throw no Wangaratta, we're down here, we've got a few electorates, you know, that our, our station covers and, uh, yeah, we're doing that. Like, okay. And that, that led to a follow-up phone call as well. 
But when I was in Melbourne, I thought, no, I might, I might just test the waters and see how I go. So I went to Fox FM and had a chat with the, uh, the news director there, uh, who then offered me a job. Went to 3RW, they offered me a job. Uh, then went to 3UZ and the news director sat down with my tape and just tore it to pieces and said, you know, your vows are terrible, this, that and the other. And I've never forgotten it because it was the best, you know, advice and constructive criticism that I'd ever actually had. And he just sort of slammed the cassette shut and he said, look, come back and see me in six months. But by that stage, I'd taken up the 3RW job and I didn't go to Fox, even though they were offering more money, because I felt as though 3RW was the news station as it is now it was very much the station to be at you're getting job offers without too much effort uh why is that what is it about you that makes you employable i had knockbacks as i mentioned earlier like but i've been extremely lucky as well but you've got to make your own luck and i'll get to that a little later the news directors that i mentioned there identified what i identify now and that is initiative and passion so that that's why that all came about and you know when i talk about creating your own luck. It's being in the right place at the right time. And by going to Fox FM, clearly there was a job going. By going to 3RW, clearly there was a job going. Um, I'd fought tooth and nail to be in the election room in Canberra, and I just happened to be seated behind AW and they recognised me. So when I did go to speak to them, they sort of had some idea of who this kid was from Wangaratta. Do you think if uh, a young student or someone in the early part of their career was to randomly call you or call Nine News, would you entertain the idea of having a chat with them and giving them some advice and maybe getting them in for a, a trial or anything like that? Does that still happen? Yeah, absolutely it does. We've got a couple of reporters here. Yeah, I won't, I won't name check them, but one who did work experience at 927, he came to Nine and did some work with us on a weekend, mainly to observe then started doing some work, and then I worked on his voice, uh, and now he's a he's a senior reporter with us. There's a, a young fellow who's been with us for a couple of years now that basically pestered us. He, he's established himself as one of the most valuable members of our newsroom because he can do so many things. So what was the opportunity for you at 3AW? What did you come back to Melbourne for? To learn and to advance in the newsroom as a cadet, and you only needed to sit and observe uh, and get yelled at. But I, I, I learned. I mean, we actually had a newsroom where there would have been probably on any given time maybe 15 people. It, it was a, a news-based station as it is now. And we had this huge desk and uh, the news director would sit outside and all the rest of it. And, you know, we had a sort of a chief of staff that was on the, that was on the news desk as well and uh, just real good old news people. By 1990, you were reading the, the sport on, uh, during the weeknights. 31 years later, you're still doing it. That's a career in the media filled with longevity. How has that happened? Because it's pretty rare. Uh, how, I'm, how I'm still doing it now is because, you know, I don't, I don't want to sound egotistical or anything like that, but you asked me the question, is I work and I work hard. Even though, you know, I might not get in some days until 2 o'clock, I know that I can do in four hours a full day's work. But I am still very, very conscious, even at 58 years of age and sort of having been here at 35 years, of giving the bosses their value for money. So when the Today Show ring up and, you know, wants you up at 7 o'clock the next morning, I do it because I feel as though you should do it because that's part of the job. You know, when uh, the producer for the tennis wants me to come back and work 
on days when I'm actually on holidays over the summer. I do it because you feel as though that's what you should do. I know a lot of preparation goes into you getting a show on air and you're part of a team to do that, obviously. That starts for you at about 4.30am in the morning, right, when you get up to read the newspapers religiously. Correct. What happens next? Talk me through the preparation for you leading up to doing a broadcast. So I get up at 4.30 and uh, I'll flick through the papers. I'll go for a walk at 5 with uh, my dog and that might be for an hour, 10 or something. And then I come home and I will might email the boss. Many a time I'll have dialogue with Neil Mitchell, you know, just swapping story ideas or something like that. And then, you know, by about 8 o'clock, can start touching base with the other reporters here via text message. No one answers their phone those days. It's just all via text message. Uh, and then touch base with our chief of staff. And then we have a 9.30 meeting, a production meeting, which more often than not I'll tap into via the phone. And everyone contributes to that. So even though I do sport, I'll still have a view. <laughs> they don't necessarily like it, but a view on some of the other stories that they're doing. Uh, and then when I do come in, whether it be you know uh, 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock, 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock or whatever, the day is set. I do try and get a, a bit of a sleep in in the afternoon, albeit for 15 or 20 minutes. I call it my Dennis, as in the former Premier, Dennis Nat time. It doesn't always happen, but I try to do it. And then uh, 6 o'clock is the news. And that's just every day, even though you've mentioned there are some days when you can come in by 2pm and your employer, given the, the collateral you've built up, would say, yeah, that's no problem if you do that every day because other senior broadcasters are doing that. You still feel the need to be working so hard. Pretty much so, because I, my, my view is they, they pay me well and I'm, I'm not going to be one of those people that takes without giving and uh, call it a pride thing, call it old-fashioned values. I, I don't know what it is, but all I know is, and the boss says he knows that even if I'm not here, I'm still working. I mean, technology has come so far now, interviews that I've done can actually be sent to me via an app and I can sit at home and go through it, log it, time code it. Well, put it this way, when Bert Newton died... I wrote his obituary on the Saturday night, voiced it from home on the Sunday morning, and that night on the news, the seven-minute obit to Bert Newton, the tribute to Bert, went to air. I never stepped foot in the office. You're a leader within the newsroom, in particular with the sports team. What makes that team work for you? Gone are the days where you'd rule with an iron fist. I, I came from an era where it was dog-eat-dog. It was brutal. If you got beaten on a story, you were reprimanded in front of the whole newsroom by the news director. He would tear strips off you and there'd be times you'd almost go home in tears. We didn't have HR departments back then. What I tend to do with uh, with my team in sport is they just go about their business. They let me know what they're doing. Uh, I don't need to know what they're doing every hour of the day, but all I know is that we're all working on the one page and we've got a rundown set in the computer and it'll all come together. I mean, as I've been talking to you, I've actually been you know, getting correspondence from one of our reporters about a Melbourne Storm story, which is developing. So gone are the days where it's like, uh, oh, can I, can I just duck down DFO for a moment and get a new pair of socks? You know, you just do what you want to do as long as we get the news to where it's six. Career highlights. You've done a number of stories across different parts of the world. What are the few out of them that, you really look back and think, geez, I was involved in that. I've been lucky to cover Olympics and Commonwealth Games, uh, cricket tours, uh, that type of thing. One of the cricket tours was in South Africa in 1994 and uh, Nelson Mandela had been released from jail and uh, they were having free elections for the first time. The highlight of that particular trip was interviewing Nelson Mandela in his office in Johannesburg. 
it was it was quite phenomenal and uh, got some photos. Yeah, it was it was quite surreal to actually see this bloke in person. How did that happen? Uh, I forget how we got wind of the fact that Bob Hawke was meeting with him, but uh, we lobbed at Shell House, which is the AMC headquarters in Johannesburg, and uh, had to go through an enormous amount of security. And there was Bob Hawke waiting in the foyer, and so we joined. And uh, uh, next thing, we're in a lift going up to I don't know, the eleventh floor or whatever it was of Shell House, and uh, these doors opened, and uh, there was a huge statue of a you know, black South African in chains and, you know, uh, it was quite quite powerful, you know, to this, this statue to sort of like be confronting you when you walked out the doors, but not near as powerful as these massive oak doors at the end of the hallway opening. And there was Nelson Mandela standing there, hello, hello, come in, you know. And so, oh, wow. So the, this it was unplanned? You weren't meant to be there? You didn't? plan questions to ask him or anything like that? Hadn't planned any questions, no. Uh, I mean, it was obviously a media call. All I know is the Channel 7 didn't turn up and uh, we had great delight in spruiking it as an exclusive. It was the usual chit-chat between him and Bob Hawke for the cameras. The cameras go and then they have the real conversation. There was laughing and, and what have you. So it was, um, yeah, it was good. It was, uh, it was great. I mean, I've been very, very lucky to sort of meet an array of people, but he would certainly be he would certainly be right up there. Uh, future of journalism, where's it going in your opinion? Well, digital is where it's going. I mean, look at, uh, say, something like the Sunday footy show. You know, we might get on any given quarter hour in Melbourne, you might have an audience of 120,000. Okay, that's a, that's a good quarter hour, normally towards the, the, the top of the show. So you've got that 120,000 watching it on Channel 9 in Melbourne. But that, that same segment can actually be posted on Facebook or uh, Nine Now or any of the other platforms. And on Facebook, that might get 300,000 views. So digital is definitely where it's at. I mean, there is still a huge appetite for the news free to air at six o'clock. Our figures are still very, very, very strong. But people more and more are turning to uh, the Nine News website. Uh, Twitter, obviously, and those type of digital platforms to get their news when they want their news as opposed to being glued to a TV for an hour. With the push towards digital, how has that changed your jobs as journalists and reporters? Well, you you need to be more adaptable and we're probably still in an infancy now. We should be doing a lot more for the digital platform in terms of the written form, which is very time-consuming and it's very hard for the reporters to actually do that because... You know, they're not only reporting for six o'clock, they've also got the morning news, they've got the four o'clock news, and then they've got the six o'clock news. So on any given day, the reporters out in the field can do probably maybe four or five live crosses. Whereas when I started, we had a 30-minute news at six o'clock and that was it. That's all you had to worry about. You didn't have to worry about any of the other things. And now, of course, with our association with 3AW, uh, the reporters are also, you know, filing for 3AW news. But, But they've also got the benefit... Uh, of having producers now. So as opposed to just going and being left to your own devices, you've uh, got the um, producer and the the backup back here to actually help put that story together. If it wasn't for the media, Tony, and you didn't have these opportunities and you didn't have such success, where would you have ended up? I genuinely don't know. It would have had to have been something creative, I think. So I, I never contemplated anything else other than working in radio. You know, even TV was never on the radar for me. So 
I don't know other than to say it would have been something creative. Well, thank you very much for having a chat with me, Tony. It's uh, good to catch up. Yeah. All right, good on you. Tony Jones has had an amazing career with plenty of highs and some lows. And while education is vital, Tony's story proves that having a love for something is what should motivate you to pursue it as a career. You're listening to the Careers Talk podcast series. Assault Studios production.